If you are online on Twitter or watching your favorite newscaster, you've probably heard about the writer's strike. If you're like me and don't have a degree in contract law, this whole situation might be a bit confusing. Who's on strike? What for? How long will it last? So many questions. Hey there, podcast fans. I'm Fran McGarrett, host of First Online with Friends. There's no place like art. Here to explain what exactly is this all about and why should we care? Matthew Huff gave the best explanation for me. He wrote a May 9th, 2023 column called the 2023 Writer's Strike, Everything You Need to Know. He explained it as the writer's strike is just like any other strike, only instead of teachers, order workers, or garbage collectors that are striking, it's writers. In this case, the writers in question are part of the Writers Guild of America. It's WGA for short. Now, the WGA represents over 12,000 writers that are working in show business. They're the ones who write the scripts for television, movies, podcasts, streaming shows, late night shows, and more. Now, the WGA is on strike for better compensation and equity structures. And while any contract negotiation has dozens of moving parts, this one mainly comes down to the arrival of streamers and something that's called residuals. Now, in the old days, when TV shows were beamed into people's houses at a specific time, and when films were put in theaters and then later released on VHS or DVD, writers were paid in two ways. First, they would get a lump sum up front for their work. If the show or movie did well, the writers, who were arguably a big part of the success, would get a portion of the payment, residuals, as long as the show or movie continued to do well. Now, here's a stickler. With the advent of streaming, the structure of how people watch things changed. For example, Netflix makes Orange is the New Black, and it's on Netflix, presumably forever. And so when streamers started commissioning writers for their shows, the writers would be paid one lump sum without residuals. Now, that means writers could have shows that millions of people watch for decades and decades without them ever seeing a dime for their work outside of the initial payment. So mostly, the WGA just wants fairer compensation for the work they do and to continue to earn money for their work that does well. Now, my guest today, Jeffrey Sweet, is part of that wave of writers, actors, and directors who transformed Chicago's off-loop theater that scene beginning in the 70s, this guy goes way back, and whose life as a writer was changed. So I got to get him on my show today. Welcome, Jeffrey. Hi, glad to be here. <laughs> Good. Now, your recent publication, which I got to read parts of Something Wonderful right away, was originally written in your 20s. Yeah. You and I, you know, since our 20s, we both learned a few things. Yeah. So let's start with talking about that journey, and yeah. then ultimately how the writer's strike 
impacts playwrights and ultimately the theater world? Like, where are we going with this? Okay, so where do you want to start? <laughs> <laughs> Let's start with being a playwright and the writer's strike and how this can impact your work and other works uh, as playwrights. Well, the Writers Guild is uh, for people who are writing for media, and uh, it doesn't cover playwriting, you know. Playwrights don't have a union because we're not employees. We're not working for the producers. And uh, because we're not employees, we are legally prohibited from having a union or having collective bargaining with uh, the theater producers. Uh, what happens is we write something and then we license the use of our work to the producers, but we still own the copyright. However, when I write for TV, whatever I write, they pay me, they own the copyright, they can change whatever they want and, and do. <laughs> but it's usually, usually you make a lot more money doing TV than you do uh, theater. The ba basic uh, uh, blessing of theater is that the playwright is very powerful in theater and can uh, have a, a very large hand in the casting and in uh, choosing a director and a lot of other things. It's just, it's uh, not the same way as it used to be back in the days of celebrity playwrights, say in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, where you would have a straight play that might run for four or five years. Plays don't run that long anymore. The big exception is if you happen to write a, a big musical that runs forever. I have a friend who, uh, a couple of friends who wrote Wicked. They're doing okay. They're doing just fine. So a lot of us who write for the theater and whose first love is writing for the theater, because that's where we have uh, some power and control, a lot of us have, have written for TV. Sometimes it's just crass for money because, you know, you have to pay the bills. I spent a couple of years writing uh, on a, a, a couple of soap operas. And whereas I did the best work I possibly could, nobody's going to notice whether I did good work or bad work on the soap opera anyway. So I was basically doing it for my uh, doing. Funding. I was doing the best work I could within the circumstances, mm -hmm. yeah. you know. And I think I did some very good writing on the shows, and I'm sure that nobody noticed because, <laughs> you know, all this stuff. I wrote some good stuff for TV. The best thing I wrote was I wrote the uh, TV movie version of a play called Pack of Lies for the Hallmark Hall of Fame. I'm listed as the creative consultant, but I really wrote that script. I love and, Hallmark. Those residual checks just keep coming in. <laughs> well, they, they didn't come in for me because I was just billed as a creative consultant and I got a flat fee and they got quite a bargain because my script ended up being nominated for the Emmy with my net without my name on it. See, that's the thing. It's that inequity. It's systemic. And then anytime you're dealing with corporations and when we're do, you're dealing with film and television, you're always dealing with corporations and you're always dealing with with politics. Nonetheless, you know, if somebody said, what's the best thing you did for TV? That was the best thing. I got to uh, write for Ellen Burstyn and Alan Bates, and that was a treat. And uh, the show won the Peabody Award, and it got great reviews, and it led to my being uh, hired to write a, a lot of other stuff. But uh, that, that was the best of it. But in television and film, if you're a writer, you don't you generally don't have any power unless you're also a producer and it takes a it takes a ways to work your way up to being a producer in television and i just i just never did that i didn't want to go to i didn't want to live in los angeles i was there a few times and really hated it you know i was able to do some television from new york and that's what i did and, and yeah. but yeah. the theater we don't have a union we can't have a union because we're not employees we have a, an association called the Dramatist Guild of America, and we look out for each other and we have recommendations about contracts and we uh, we fight for copyright problems and we fight against censorship. 
and we're there to help uh, younger and newer members uh, to keep from them from being uh, cheated or abused by some of the uh, some of the sharpies that are out there, even in the theater. But it's a whole different way of operating. You simply work differently in the theater than you do in uh, in film and television. Now, the big issue with uh, television and film is that the contracts for uh, film and TV writers have always been lousy. Always. What do you think that is? When videotape came in, they said, oh, this is an experimental medium. We don't expect to make much money off of this. And uh, uh, our leadership sort of believed that. And we ended up getting like really crappy residuals off of uh, off of VHS. And then when DVD came in, they, they gave us the same song and dance. And somehow we were sort of snowed on that. Streaming is the last battlefield. Everybody's doing streaming. And the residuals uh, on streaming, such as they are, are terrible. Also, it used to be if you were writing on a TV series, typically a TV series would be 26 episodes a year and you would have work for like nine months and you'd have three months off to recover <laughs> because being in the writer's room sometimes is very intense. And then, you you know, you go back to have a full season's worth of work. Nobody shoots that many episodes of a, a show anymore. So the uh, established TV writers who used to have pretty good lives are scrambling trying to do three shows in a season. Yeah. Also, what's happening, too, is I think, you know, the big corporations, they don't know how to resolve this. Oh, they do. They do know how to resolve it. They, well, oh, they tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me They have to share money. If you took the salaries of the top five or six executives in streaming, their salaries combined would cover everything the entire membership, the drama of the Writers Guild wants. It's simply greed. It's always been greed. Somebody who's running a streaming channel may be making $35 million a year. Oh, man, I had no idea. Yeah, it's greed. The people at the top never give up anything without a fight, and so they're getting a fight. This is the last battlefield because uh, streaming, I can't think of anything technologically that would supply material this immediately, this fast, this directly to the consumer. You know, it's not like DVDs or VHS where you actually have to buy a physical thing. Streaming just comes in your computer to that point what you're saying these new things are coming in and it's like a hot potato what do we, you know streaming coming is coming in and you have these people making millions and millions of dollars and don't want to share it i didn't even think about it that way but that makes a lot of sense it comes to basically down to greed but what do you think is going to happen with the evolution of ai paul uh, Rudnick wrote a um, yeah, I saw that, that was... op-ed piece. Did you see it yeah. in the New York Times? Scripts generated by AI get me rewrite. Here's what the, the hell is going to go on with that? Here's the thing about AI. AI doesn't have a soul and it doesn't understand psychology and it doesn't understand the quirks of human behavior. All it can do is strip mine what has already been written by other people. So AI, first and foremost, is engaged in copyright violation because it's using our material without compensating. Secondly, it has no sense of humor and it has no sense of character. So the stuff that comes out of AI sounds very stilted. A third, you know, audiences aren't that stupid. They can sort of tell when there's life behind something and, and, and when there isn't. What some of these producers are going to try to do is try to get rough drafts written by AI and the rough drafts will be lousy. And then they'll try to hire writers to do the rewrites and uh, uh, at reduced rates. And then uh, rewrites are you pay people cheaper than the original script. So writers will look at this crap 
and they'll be hired to turn it into something playable. And they'll essentially be writing the scripts anyway, except they'll be being paid less money. Can you think of anything that, you know, in our past that is like this? You know, every time new technology comes in, new ways to abuse the technology come in. Anytime new technology comes in, the new technology just gives you a facility. There's no morality built into that facility. So the facility can be used for good or ill. The real, the thing that really uh, made uh, VHSs explode was pornography. No. Uh, all of a sudden, people didn't have to go in their raincoats to uh, to crummy places and look like creeps. They could uh, stay Jeffrey, there. you are an education for me today. I never put those two things together. Yes, no, no. One of the reasons why I love my job, I love doing this. It's because I always learn something new from. Well, it's, 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 it has a lot to do with the explosion of the internet too. Is yeah. and uh, so technology is not the advance of technology is not based in morality. It's based in a facility, what you can do. You can either use this technology for to broadcast Don Giovanni from the Met or um, some independent contractor who's making a, a pornography in a room in order to, uh, to pay the bills in Tucson. It's the same technology being used for different purposes. Mm -hmm. So there's no inherent morality in any technology. It's all how you use it. What has happened because of streaming that's good? Well... We have something like 500 dramatic uh, TV shows that you have access now between what's being done in this country and the astonishing stuff that's coming from uh, from Europe and Asia and Africa. Uh, some of the best television in the world is being made in Denmark right now. I mean, it's jaw-dropping how good this stuff is. I, I don't know anything about this. Tell me more about this. Oh, uh, go to Netflix and watch a show called Borgen, B-O-R-G-E-N. Okay, that's, yeah. that's that's one of the best shows out there. That's a Danish show. There's a French show called Spiral. That's the best cop show you've you've ever seen. The Germans are, are producing, the, the Swedes, they're all producing amazing television. They discovered, guess what? A lot of people actually can read and they don't mind watching, reading subtitles. And also Netflix has, uh, has invested the money into doing uh, dubbing for people who don't want to read subtitles and, and want to hear the dialogue done in English. The dubbing is never as good as the original performances, but some people don't care. Anyway, so you've got, in terms of the quality of the art, there's an enormous amount of brilliant stuff out there, and you cannot keep up with it all. It's impossible to keep up with it all. But some of these limited-run series are, you know, seven or eight episodes long. It's not the same as writing, uh, being on a writing staff that writes 26 episodes in a year. So people who used to have comfortable livings are scrambling are, and are terrified. But they also, the residuals were never very good. And now with streaming, they're basically non-existent. You know, you might be paid decently for, you know, as a weekly salary working on a series. But if you're only going to work for two or three months, that's not going to cover your nut for a year. Yeah, that's what I've been told by CDs that this strike thing is going to go on. Oh, it's going to go on because we're looking for a fundamental reordering of the business. Yeah. The writers have always been, always in Hollywood, have always been treated shabbily. The only way that you get power is if you go from being a writer to being a producer, and then people treat you decently as a producer. Uh, or, or if your best friend is a movie star who stands up for you, because the movie star is one of the senior producers, and uh, they think that the movie star is more important than the writer. Because, you know, audiences are loyal to the, the movie or TV star and they don't know from nothing about the writers for the most part. 
Well, let's get back to playwrights. Okay. And what's your prognosis? I know you got a pet project that you're working on now, the Chicago project. Oh, well, that's uh, that's a uh, that's another project which is involved with money. Gee, I'd like to go back to writing plays. <laughs> uh, one of the problems with the theater as it's structured now, and the nonprofit theater as it's structured now, is that when people want to support the theater, let's say that you are a theater lover and you would love to support uh, the, the art. So your first instinct is going to be to write a check to the theater that you really love: Manhattan Theater Club, Ensemble Studio Theater, Playwrights Horizons, whatever. But that means that the money is in the hands of the bureaucrats and the administrators. It's not going to the artists. Eventually, some of it gets to the artists after they pay for the offices, uh, their office expenses. What I'm trying to do is to uh, uh, encourage a return to a, a system that goes back to the Medici's, which is if you like a playwright and you'd like to commission a play by that playwright, you would be able to get write a check to this nonprofit organization so that you'd get your your deduction, and the nonprofit organization would then give that money directly to a playwright to support writing a new play or researching a new play or maybe putting together sort of a, a war chest of enhancement money. What that means is, let's say that a lot of people love a play of mine, and they put twenty five thousand dollars into a fund for enhancement money to support that play. Then if I go to a, a, a nonprofit theater artistic director and I say, if you put this play on, I've got enhancement money of 25 grand to help your theater put the play on. And then uh, explain the term enhancement. Money. Enhancement means uh, more money than they ordinarily would be able to budget. Wow. A lot of the things that you think are coming straight out of the nonprofit theater are in fact things that have been financed partially by commercial producers that are using the nonprofit theater as a cheaper way to develop a piece. So for instance, although Hamilton started running at the public theater, there were commercial interests giving money to the public theater to help subsidize the initial run of Hamilton there. The result is that um, it was way cheaper to develop the piece, but also I'm betting that the public theater does not participate in the subsequent royalties of Hamilton because they didn't initially Oh, produce it. I mean, they did. They didn't generate it. It's not like a chorus line, which Joe Papp was the sole backer of at the at the public theater, and the money from a chorus line subsidized the public theater's uh, operating uh, expenses for almost twenty years. Are those what we call our angels, or is that different? There are two different kinds of ways that people can put money into the theater. One is that they invest in a commercial project and hope that they will get a return. If you were one of the smart people who invested in Fiddler on the Roof, you made a lot of money. When I was a kid, I had a friend who was another kid uh, who wrote a little musical that was being done off, off Broadway. And I went to see it and I thought it was just sensational. I saw a preview of it. And I said to him, I have a feeling this is going to be picked up and I've got uh, two grand saved in my savings account. I said, you know, I think this is going to move and I think it's going to be big and I would like to put two grand into this. And my friend, whose name was and still is Alan Menken, oh my, said, Jeff, the Schubert's really don't need your two thousand dollars. It was <laughs> it was Little Shop of Horrors, and they'd already swooped down on it. And they really didn't need my money in it. If they had let me invest in it, I would have made a lot of money. But I've never been in the position of being able to back my own taste uh, commercially on something that I've read. 
I read Sleuth early. A friend of mine said, should I invest in it? And I said, if I had money, I'd invest in it. And my friend said, I don't know. It's about class warfare in England. Why are Americans going to be interested in this? And he didn't invest in it. And he didn't make a lot of money. Every now and then, I've never been in a position to be able to commercially back my instincts, which is too bad. <laughs> okay, yeah, this, this is, if you're investing commercially, that's a, a for-profit proposition. If you just love the business and uh, lo love theater and you want to see good theater happen, you know, you donate money to the theater through a nonprofit structure. You get a deduction because you've donated. You don't see any return on the money. You just feel good because you've helped the theater keep operating. One of the reasons why I admire the Signature Theater is they feature the work of a playwright during a, a season. I'm a huge fan of, of Sarah Rule. And they did a whole series of of her plays. It just it was just wonderful. Is that the, like what you're talking about? Well, I'm a big fan of the of some of the nonprofit theaters, although some of them are in desperate trouble. The Westport yeah. Country Playhouse is having big trouble. Wow. The theater that I was affiliated with for years was mishandled, I think. It was the Victory Gardens Theater. We won the Tony Award for Best Regional Theater, and it's now closed and dead because I think that, that it was uh, on the business side, uh, people uh, mishandled things. The lockdown didn't help either. Mostly people give money directly to institutions and they get their deduction. What I am suggesting is, you know, it's nice to give money to institutions. How about giving some money directly to the artist to create something? There was a wonderful playwright who died uh, uh, not long ago named Arthur Coppett. He wrote, Oh, Dad, Poor Dad, and Wings, and Indian. Anyway, somebody came to him and said, I'm terribly concerned about uh, the threat of nuclear proliferation. Do you have any ideas about how to write a play about this? And Arthur said yes. And this guy, I, I don't know the name of this rich guy, wrote a check to Arthur and said, write the play. The guy wasn't looking for any return. He just wanted to play out there. And uh, uh, Arthur wrote a play called End of the World. Yeah. It got to Broadway. But that was a direct relationship between a donor and a playwright. playwright. And mostly that doesn't happen anymore. Why mostly do you think that is? Because people aren't aware that they can do it, that there's no organization out there that helps facilitate it or helps donors to meet artists directly. So what are you going to do about it? I am uh, trying to start a pilot program in Chicago where there will be readings of two new plays plus a, an afternoon of pitches from from uh, playwrights about projects they're working on. And I'm hoping to attract theater lovers who've got some cash and that they will uh, say, oh, that sounds interesting. I want to support that. Or that writer is interesting. I want to encourage that writer. I mean, it used to be that people sometimes would do this. There was a young writer who had no money and was desperate named Tennessee Williams. Yeah. And there was a, you know, a well-known actor named Hume Cronin and his uh, wife, Jessica Tandy. And they kind of thought that Tennessee Williams was talented. And so they, they kept uh, sending money to him so he could buy oatmeal. And somewhere along the line, he decided that he was going to thank them. And he wrote a little play called um, Streetcar Named Desire for Jessica Tandy as a way partially of saying thank you because they had kept him alive. That's what you get. Yeah. You know, Streetcar probably happened because Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy uh, recognized Tennessee Williams' uh, talent and helped him pay his bills when he was broke. So what's your plan? What's your model? 
You're going to go to Chicago, and what are you going to well, do? Well, the model is there are going to be two plays that will be given staged readings, and there will also be an afternoon where playwrights will get up and say, I'm working on this project or that project, and I'm hoping to get people in the audience who will say, oh, that sounds interesting, and they'll contact the writer directly. It's not going to come through me. I have no interest in being a business person on this thing or taking a percentage. Not interested. I want to get back to writing. But what I want to do is to create the idea of, yes, you can make direct contact with writers and commission them or support them. And, and you and you can get your tax deduction and you can help make the art usually starts uh, with the writer in the theater. Not always, but usually it starts with the writer. So if you want to improve the theater, support good writers. Give them a reason to stay in the theater. That was one of this is part of my history. I don't know if you knew this, but... Um, I was a theater teacher for over 30 years in high school, and I always treated kids as not an equal so much, but as valid voices and that voices that needed to be heard. And um, I started my my doctoral work at NYU. My doctoral professor, Lowell Swartzell, I love him, said, you should look into Stephen Sondheim's Young Playwrights Festival. Yep. And I ended up writing my dissertation on it. And then I ended up working for them because he was the one person that I knew who understood kids, didn't discriminate against kids. He treated them like professionals and lifted them up. And his belief was, if we're going to continue to have the American theater, then we sure should better start teaching how to write a play to young people. Yeah, well, that's terribly important. The other thing that's important, though, we live in a youth-obsessed culture, and they're throwing away a lot of the older writers. This doesn't happen in England. Tom Stoppard writes uh, uh, Leopold Stott in his 80s. Yeah. And, you know, Alan Bennett writes a play. He's in his 80s. They're going to produce, you know, um, David Hare. We're obsessed with youth, and it's important that youth be encouraged, and it's important that new playwrights be encouraged. But it's also slightly stupid to throw away people who've learned a few things and have written rich and deep and wise plays. Mm -hmm. That was another thing that was was wonderful with what Sondheim did. He teamed the young playwright with a professional playwright. Yeah, with a professional. So I, I I I I was one of those professional playwrights that worked with a young a young playwright. Yeah, I'm blanking on the name of. Um, Okay, so we we have to follow this up because I'm writing a book about that experience. So we'll we'll talk after the show, Jeffrey. Let's get back to where you're coming from, and that is you want to get back to writing. Oh yeah, I want to get back to. Uh, I mean, I'm having a we're we're recording this uh, a reading of a new play at uh, Ensemble Studio Theater, a play that hasn't been read before that I wrote mostly during lockdown, and I've got another play which had a reading in February, and I'm looking for a new home. It used to be when I was a member of Victory Gardens. I would write the play, I would send it in, and they would schedule it. I did 13 shows in a row for them like that. Uh, now I don't have a home anymore, so I'm looking for a new home. I'm looking for a new place to do my plays. I did a couple of things outside of Victory Gardens. I did a solo show that I performed that uh, I did in the New York Fringe and got a nice review out of the Times, and then I was running around the country doing the solo show. And then I also wrote a two-character play about the radical lawyer William Kunstler, and that played uh, at 59 East 59th Street and then went up to Barrington Stage, where it surprised everybody by being their surprise hit of the summer. They they booked it for eight for four weeks and ended up uh, bringing it back at the end of the season for another for another run, which the, I don't think they do very often. So I'm trying to see what further life is in Kunstler. 
I'd like to see it done in Chicago. I wouldn't mind getting a, a higher profile run of it in New York. But again, this is money. When we did it at 59 East 59th Street, it cost $80,000 to run something for four weeks in a 100-seat theater, and we were never going to break even. You know, you do this in the hopes that somebody says, oh, let's move this to the next level, and maybe at the next level, uh, you'll make some money. As, uh, as an actor, I, I got to, you know, perform in, in new plays, and it was at Theater of the New City, and it was so good. It got such good root, and it's, like you said. The money that I made in this business, I made mostly off of television. As an actor, it's true. Also, also, I wrote uh, the, the the book to a musical. I don't know if you remember the old uh, Murray Shusko comedy, Love L U V. But I wrote the book to a musical version of it um, that flopped off Broadway with Nathan Lane and Judy Kay. Go go. And then we uh, then it got revived a few years later at the York Theater with Judy Kay and Austin Pendleton, and that worked. That production worked better. And then it got picked up for Tokyo. And it ran two years in Tokyo. I never went to see it, but that production paid for my share of my son's college education. This is the life. But yeah. I, I, I wish that's the way everything went. But that was that was the the one like really stupid hit that I've had because I only worked for like three weeks on that project, and it ended up being, oh, you never know where where you're gonna where you're gonna get what. I'd like to get back to uh, to find a regular home at a theater, and I'd like to get. I'm 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 lucky in that. You know, when I was when I was making good money, I wasn't an idiot. I, I held on to it, invested it, and I'm okay. So now I can just do projects that I want to do, but I still have to do them with people. So yeah, it's it's a collaboration. You know, yeah, you're not like a, a novelist that can sit in your room and uh, yeah, so theater's yeah, a social form. On the other hand, I'm also very pleased that. Um, this new edition of my book is coming out. Yeah, I wanted to talk. Make sure we talked about that. You know, something wonderful right away is a book that I, uh, the original version of it came out in 1978. It's a book about the people who created Second City and who founded a whole movement in American comedy that we're still writing today. Major people are still coming out of Second City today. Uh, you know, Colbert, Tina Fey, Keegan Michael Key, uh, Amber Ruffin, uh, all these amazing people. But uh, the roots of it, why it started, how it started, who the geniuses were, who created this form. Uh, the original version of the book came out in 78, and I wanted to do a new edition that would uh, include some new material. That yeah, would, you said uh, uh, an interview with Viola Spolin. Well, I I did that interview back in the 1970s, and uh, uh, Viola, for reasons that were slightly crazy, decided at the last minute not to let me use it then. And so uh, her estate for this edition is finally letting me use this interview that I did back in the 70s. It's a, a an interview with Viola Spolin, the great genius who invented theater games and was the uh, essentially the founder of the improvisational theater movement. It's uh, an, uh, an interview that's never been published before, and it uh, and it's an interview which uh, members of her family were surprised by some of what was in the book was what was in the interview because she didn't talk about this stuff with them. She talked about it with me, and I have one interview with somebody new which is an interview with Keegan-Michael Key. The original book was all white people. There, in fact, was a, a very good uh, Second City player, a black player that I wanted to interview for the original book, but he didn't like his work at Second City and he refused to be interviewed. Wow. And I thought, well, this is this is ludicrous. This is a satiric theater dealing with what's going on in American society. And one of the things that's going on in American society always is the race issue. And to not have been able to deal 
with race at Second City because they didn't have very many black people was, you know, a big lack. So uh, I thought I can't have this book come out and have it be all white again. And uh, Keegan is uh, not a close friend, but but we, we we like each other and get along. And I said, can you help me take the curse off this book? And he said, yeah, OK. And it turned out he was a big fan of the book. And we had a terrific conversation last fall. And a lot of it uh, has to do with uh, how Second City has evolved from originally it was largely a Jewish theater. Most of the people in it were Jewish. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was part of that wave of Jewish satirists that included Mort Saul and Lenny Bruce and Stan Freeberg, Tom Lair, Jules Pfeiffer, Philip Roth, Joan Rivers, uh, a lot of those people. And in the original companies of Second City, most of the actors were Jewish. You know, the people who weren't were sort of the straight men who were constantly being confounded you know, we're, we're, we're presenting straight, normal, waspy American society, and the and the comics would come back with their take on it. Now it's multicultural. You know, Tina Fey isn't Jewish, Colbert isn't Jewish, Keegan isn't Jewish, Carell is. But anyway, so it's um, uh, it's evolved, and I wanted to I wanted to deal with that evolution, and I also wanted to tell some pretty good stories because some of these people stayed friends. I interviewed Mike Nichols when I was in my twenties, and he remained a, a, a friend of mine as I hit 70 or so, you know, approaching my seventies, wow. we, we just stayed in touch and would occasionally have meals or phone calls, or he would uh, show up at my stuff. Jeffrey, what was it like as a writer to look back at something that you wrote in your twenties? Like, what did you see? What did you understand about that 20 something? I guess the, the thing that I was, you know, because I inevitably, I was looking at a younger version of myself it was how idealistic and romantic I was about the theater and a little naive. I'm, I'm a little less naive. I like to think, but I'm still, I'm still as idealistic and romantic, you know, this is really what I've devoted my life to and what I love. And uh, there was a continuity there. So I thought, yeah, he was a kid in his twenties, but I recognize him. And then also in the wake of writing that book, I understood so much more about actors and how to write for them that I started writing better material. And that's when my plays broke through. My first good play uh, happened, came into being after I had written most of that book because I understood actors better and how to uh, how to write for actors way better. I always thought that uh, playwriting was a literary activity and it isn't. Literature is meant to be read on the page. Playwriting is meant to inspire actors to create compelling behavior. You know, I, I, I teach this stuff. Uh, if anybody's interested, uh, go to a website called thenegotiatingstage.com. And I have been uh, teaching online. I, I used to teach in universities. And one of my books, The Dramatist Toolkit, is used widely in um, MFA programs. It's in its like 18th printing now. But there are technical things there. You, you can learn the technique of writing plays. I can't fill your soul with inspiration, but I can teach you enough so that you don't ruin a good idea. And it's very satisfying. Uh, one of the uh, one of the runners up for the Pulitzer this year was a guy I taught 20 years ago, and I knew he was good. And I got a very nice note for him from him saying, you know, I really appreciate the encouragement that you've given me all these years. And I, I knew 20 years ago that he had it in him. And he's uh, he's become an important uh, an important playwright. Donald and I spotted an, an actress that we thought was very smart. And we told her, you're a writer. 
we bullied her into writing and her name is Jane Anderson and she's one of the highest priced writers in Los Angeles now. If you spot talent and can be useful to it, that's just really satisfying. But then people did that to me. Sondheim came to see a show of mine off off Broadway and gave me notes. John Guare heard about me and took me out to lunch. And, you know, Lanford Wilson was a, a very early. Edward Albee was encouraging. He produced one of my early plays and just uh, kept being encouraging and friendly. This man who used to bite the heads off of people because uh, he had little patience with me was just a sweetheart. Why is he being nice to me when he just left that person bleeding in the corner? I find that many of the great writers have been just insanely generous and friendly. There are some that are competitive and nasty and, and creepy. And those are the ones you, you you tend to hear about because they get, you know, hauled in by HR, you know, or accused of horrible things. But mostly, mostly the, the writers that I've gotten to know over the years have been generous and they're enthusiastic about each other. They're the biggest fans of each other as, as writers. You know, one of the things that fills my heart is to see Lin-Manuel Miranda plugging other people's shows. You know, he's got two shows running himself, but he's such a fan of Kimberly Akimbo. He's saying, go see this show, you know, and he's that generosity is just uh, fills my heart. I met him before Hamilton because I wrote a book about the O'Neill Center and he did some of his early work at the O'Neill Center. So I did a big interview with him in, in the book about how it was to be at the Eugene O'Neill Center and uh, uh, what he got out of that experience. And, and the O'Neill Center was an, it is an extraordinary place. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to write the book about it. I mean, the O'Neill Center, the second year I went there, I saw a children's play with this blonde girl. And I thought, well, she's good. And the blonde girl was Meryl Streep. Oh, my God. And, and she ended up writing the introduction to my book. Oh, God, Jeffrey. So to wrap up our conversation here, it could go on for hours. The scope of your career and your experiences, it's like, how enriching. It's just been enormous fun. I've been able to I've been able to meet wonderful people and work with wonderful people and witness some extraordinary work. And I'm still doing it. I'm still writing. I'm still building stuff and I'm still trying to uh, come up with structures. You know, my big project at the moment is how do we support writers directly instead of going through corporate uh, uh, nonprofit? How do we support artists directly? Because uh, right now, a lot of the money is going to uh, to support the facility or to the bureaucracy, and very little of it is, is going directly to uh, to the artists. And ultimately, the artists are the reason why the art is going to survive. And if you don't support the artists, you, the art is going to be a lot thinner and a lot less interesting. And thank you for taking up this cause, for sharing your conversation with me, your vast knowledge. Uh, I'm so flattered that you got to spend time with me today. And I look forward to where this project goes. So let's stay on each other's radar and I'll have you back. Thank you. My pleasure. Find out more about what Fran is up to. Go to her website at firstonlinewithfran.com. This program was produced by March Hare Media and recorded at Wheat Studio Productions. <laughs>